Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. In October 1972, I returned from my second year to UCD to find the Belfield Arts Block filled with new first-year students trying to find their way about. Making my way through this excited crowd, I met a friend coming the other way. Come with me, she said. And so I followed her into Theatre L, that huge amphitheatre lecture hall crowded with expectant first-year students for their first lecture in English. The lecturer, a lanky figure with a shock of black hair in priestly garb, came and took his place on the podium. A hush descended on the packed hall. Good morning, students. I'm Father Michael Paul Gallagher, and these lectures will be on practical criticism. But that's not Michael Paul Gallagher, I whispered to my companion. She put her finger to her lips and motioned for me to listen on. Ah, yes, he continued, practical criticism. I recall a student who went to Professor Donahue saying, I have practically criticised this poem. Yes, he replied, practically, but not quite. But at the end of this course, you will gain new insights into poetry, new visions and understanding. You will look at a poem like Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, and you will see this not as a nursery rhyme, but as an existentialist exploration of the situation of modern man fallen from grace and searching for meaning in an absurd world. Who are you? said a bearded clerical figure who now arrived at the podium. I'm Father Michael Paul Gallagher, the lecturer replied. No, I'm Father Michael Paul Gallagher. Right, uh, sorry, the imposter cried. And off he ran to the cheers and groans of the first-year students. We caught up with him outside. He was flushed and excited from his act and keen to know how we thought it had gone. This was my first encounter with Dermot Morgan, second-year student and all-around funny guy. We became good friends and as we were both doing English, we saw a lot of each other. I was thoroughly entertained by him on every meeting for he never stopped performing, whether on stage or with company. His energy was manic, and his comments hilarious and apt. He was liable to turn up anywhere and everywhere in the guise of his latest character. He even showed up at the Tramps Ball in the restaurant building, fronting a band called Big Gom and the Imbeciles. But he had to give that up, he told me, as people were taking it too seriously and missing the satire wanting to book the group for dances, while all he wanted to do was poke fun at the country music scene with songs like Casablaney Blues, I Walk Black Line, or Be Nobody's Darling But Wine. After college, we drifted apart, but I followed his comedy career through his letters to the early morning Mike Murphy radio show and on to the live Mike on television, where Father Brian Trendy, his next priestly incarnation, appeared. This was an altogether smoother priestly character, well-groomed in his leather jacket, smiling at the camera. He advised us to be like the Irish soccer team and pick divine, or act as a fishing rod for God to catch a soul 
and fill it with love. But again, there was the danger that his bite-sized pieces of religion might be taken for real. And my mother, for one, loved his little sermons. His next incarnation was as the growling, irritated voice of Charlie Hockey in his own radio show Scrap Saturday with Jerry Stenbridge. This was full of cutting impersonation and biting political satire that to me represents the height of his career. Maybe it was too close to the bone as after a few seasons, Scrap Saturday was scrapped. He went on to play his third and most famous priestly role, Father Ted, and gain international fame. Father Ted Crilly dreams of bigger things than the dead-end wilderness of Craggy Island, a parish to match his abilities, recognition, fame and fortune. But everywhere his projects crumble under the reality of the people he is surrounded by. It was a wonderful farce, extremely well written and well acted by a fantastic cast. But I kept thinking that for all its quality, Dermot Morgan had so much comic ability underused in the series. The last time I met him was in Kilkenny, when he was on a solo tour called Black Magic. He'd been in the news recently, having appeared in court and been fined for speeding through Mount Rath in County Leash. His comment to the audience on this was as acerbic as ever. Did you ever see Mount Rath? He thundered. Fifty miles is too bloody slow to go through the place. We met and talked after the show, but he had to return to Dublin early and promised a real UCD reunion at a future time. That reunion never happened, and he died at the height of his fame, playing the vainglorious Father Ted. Dermot never lost the manic energy and enthusiasm he showed in Belfield, where he constantly had us in fits of laughter with his antics. While the world got to know him and love him as the farcical Father Ted, it was in UCD, in front of those bemused and bewildered first years, that he played the first of those oddball priests that were to bring him so much fame. Pale, pubescent beasts roam through the streets and coffee shops. Their prey gather in herds the stiff knee-length skirts and white ankle socks but while they search for a mate my type hibernate in bedrooms above when she died in 1974 her books were selling a hundred thousand copies in hardback five hundred thousand in paperback per year Yet nobody seemed to have heard of Georgette Rougier, a French woman. No, she was successful and acclaimed under her maiden name, Georgette Hare. People only learned her married name from her obituaries. Because when her first big hit, These Old Shades, was published, it was during the general strike in Britain. There was no publicity because there were no newspapers and magazines. But it sold 190,000 copies. So Georgette, disliking intrusion into her private life, decided there and then she would never be interviewed. And she stuck with it through a writing life of 52 novels, 
once describing the kind of publicity afforded woman novelists as nauseating. One wonders what she'd have thought of today's relentless internet self-promotion. Her husband said her obituaries was George Ronald Rougier, a Queen's counsel, and they had one son. So far, so privileged. It conjured up visions of a porcelain doll figure, shyly working away in her boudoir while her husband protected her from every harsh wind. But Georgette Hare had a fascinating life, but not one that might have been expected from the writer credited with the invention of the Regency romance genre. She was born in Wimbledon in 1902, the eldest of three children. It was a literary household with a father who encouraged voracious reading, even by his daughter, unusual enough for the time. And it was he who suggested that a tale she made up at the age of 16 to amuse her invalid brother, who suffered from a form of haemophilia, should be published. The Black Moth appeared when she was 19. In 1925, she married a newly qualified mining engineer, George Rougier. It was a quiet ceremony because Georgette's father had died suddenly only a few months previously. He left his family in dire straits financially, leaving his daughter to support her brothers, then aged 19 and 14. Her husband soon obtained an engineering job in East Africa and his bride decamped with him to live in a hut made of elephant grass and where she was the first white woman ever to have been seen. She had already established a reputation for her historical accuracy and even without her huge, painstakingly collected reference library in Africa, she wrote a Jacobean adventure, The Masqueraders, set in 1745. It apparently contained the only historical inaccuracy ever found in any of her books. She made a mistake of one year in the establishment of White's Club in German Street. On the Rougier's return to England in 1929, she embarked on motherhood. She was starting to alternate her romances with contemporary thrillers, the first being Footsteps in the Dark. She later refused to allow her publishers to reissue it, pointing out that when she wrote it, she had been increasing the phrase, she added, that would have been used in the Regency for pregnancy and that one husband and two ribald brothers had hands in the writing. She also impishly described her son Richard as her great achievement. It was only in the mid-thirties that husband George realised his ambition of reading for the bar. He was called in 1939, just before the outbreak of war, but it was his wife who was the main breadwinner, although she seems always to have made light of her work. Of Friday's Child, published in 1941, she wrote that it was nonsense, but that she could quite see how it would be a good companion while crouching in a bomb shelter during the Blitz. But it was her extraordinary historical accuracy in the minutiae of the period from 1811 to 1820 that was Georgette Hare's achievement and her gift to posterity. There are some historians and critics who sneer at it as weighing her books down, but one suspects a collective green eye, as it's admitted that Miss Hare probably knew more about the details of life in the period than the average academic scholar. As a dazzled teenage fan, her minutiae never weighed me down. They just built an edifice of huge escape. 
And as Stephen Fry wrote last year in a preface to the Folio Society's new edition of Venetia, you might expect it to be gooey, ghastly, cutesy, sentimental and trashy. Instead, you would find it the wittiest and most insightful, full of ironic awareness and satire. Her library contained more than a thousand reference books, including histories of snuffbox and signposts, as well as costume, and her card references listed terms of endearment and forms of address. She once bought a letter written by the Duke of Wellington so she could copy his style for use in an infamous army, and also boasted, apparently with justice, that every word she put in Wellington's mouth in that enthralling, sprawling novel of the Battle of Waterloo had actually been spoken by the Iron Duke. Over the years, more than one copyist, including Barbara Cartland, successful but not exactly highly regarded in literary terms, was proved to have plagiarised Hare, but she resolutely refused to sue. And at one stage, having transferred the Commonwealth rights to 17 of her most successful works to her publisher, Heinemann, for £750. What was she thinking of? She later refused 80000 to have them transferred back to her by an uncomfortably guilty publisher. She had given her word, she explained. Is it any wonder I'm still kicking myself for having transferred my complete set of Georgette Hare Regency romances to a hospital library? At the time, I thought I was finally acknowledging adulthood. Now, I'd just like to settle down again with the Grand Sophie or an infamous army. And as for hero Lady Sheringham, a.k.a. Kitten, and her scandalously disgraceful chariot race on the public road, I wouldn't need a bomb shelter to enjoy Friday's child. The Greek hero Odysseus was ploughing his field on Ithaca when the recruiting sergeant enlisted him for the expedition against the Trojans. Lucius Quintius, a retired Roman statesman, was following the plough when a delegation from the Senate arrived to plead with him to return to defend the city against the invader. Victory achieved, Quintius returned to his farm, declining all honours and accolades. He was known by the sobriquet Cincinnatus, the curly-haired. He recently became a Google celebrity when name-checked by Boris Johnson. Cincinnatus's reputation for selfless public service was legendary. In 1783, a society was formed by American officers called the Society of the Cincinnati, whose aim was to preserve the ideals of the American Revolution. In 1790, a town in the Northwest Territory of Ohio was named Cincinnati in honor of the society. Today, a sculpture stands prominently in the city, 
showing the Roman statesman with curly hair and beard, one hand returning the fasces, a bundle of wooden rods which symbolised his power as dictator, the other resting on his plough. When Irish ploughmen gathered for the National Ploughing Championships in County Leash last week, I was in Cincinnatus's city of Rome. I was, however, able to summon to the inner eye of memory the ploughing fields of Rathaneske, because it was there I spent the happiest of childhood years. Spelled Rathaniska, but pronounced Rathaneska, the Irish name Rahina Nishka means little wrath of the water. During the 50s, my father was a schoolmaster in Rathaneske. The teacher's house was located between the school and chapel, which stood at a fork where three roads converged. The countryside gently sloped away, presenting a panoramic vista of serene and varied beauty. Irregular fields of every shape and size were framed by a network of ditches and hedgerows. Clumps of woodland punctuated the landscape. The panorama changed with the seasons. The brown earth and rotting winter stubble turned to delicate green in spring and a brighter tone as the harvest ripened. The mood could change hourly as light and shadow played against one another between earth and sky. To the east you could observe a lashing cloudburst while the sun flashed through rifted clouds in the west. Shadow and sunburst, wind and light, clouds ominous or luminous, the elements fused in dramatic beauty. Rainbows frequently adorned the vaulted expanse. Thunderstorms brought fascination and terror. One of my earliest memories is of our neighbour Dennis Drennan ploughing the field below the school Rathaneske, his giant Clydesdales frothing at the mouth, hooves stamping as they strained against the creaking harness and heaved into the tearing earth. With the reins balancing the stronger horse against the weaker, Dennis guided the ploughshare as it sliced the sod into gleaming ridges. At the end of the furrow he turned on the headland and in an elaborate manoeuvre aligned horses and plough in the opposite direction. By evening the field was a glistening spectacle of perfectly parallel lines. Free-range children, there were no limits to where we could roam. On Sunday afternoons, as my brothers, passionate about our national games, listened to the commentator screeching on the battery-powered wireless, to me the acme of boredom, I crossed ditches and walked grassy headlands, gathering hazelnuts, sloes, rosehips, vetches and berries. The hedgerows were a self-contained ecology of growth, with blackthorn, ivy, honeysuckle, ash, sycamore, elm and elderberry all tangled and enmeshed. They were home to the speckled wood and orange-tipped butterfly, honeybee and a host of insects. In those days one heard the corncrake, cuckoo and curlew. The countryside buzzed with wildlife. One of my most pleasant memories from those Sunday evenings is of the Radio Erin programme, Kjol de Fosh Thee, Music for Children. The shepherd's song from Beethoven's pastoral was frequently played, the perfect mood music for an idyllic rural childhood. By contrast, I have just one unhappy memory from those carefree afternoons. After Mass on a Sunday in mid-June, my godfather's widow, Mrs Rankin, who never forgot my birthday, gave me two half-crowns, a small treasure in 1959. It was the first time I had not just one but two of those prized pre-decimal coins exquisitely decorated with a silver horse. After dinner, in the middle of the day, I set out on my usual adventure through a gap in the fence into the meadow behind our house. 
I wandered through the budding corn and scraped my way through brambles and briars. Lying on my back in the sun, I put my hand in my trousers to take out and admire again my shiny pair of horses and the words La Choroin in the old Irish spelling. Both pockets were empty. I retraced my steps in vain. The coins with the silver horses are still somewhere in that field. As they ploughed the field in Rathanesca last week, I wonder, did one of the ploughmen catch a fleeting glimpse of silver, perhaps, as he turned the sod? Last week, ferrying my children around in the car, I listened to radio conversations about leaving cert results, college applications and the points race. It took me back to my own leaving in 1996 when there was only one course I wanted, communications and DCU. I knew exactly the results I needed to get it. I'd read the course outline so often I knew it by heart. I could see myself on my first day walking onto that campus. As I studied hard on my desk next to my school books were Just Seventeen magazine and books by Joan Lingard and Maeve Binchy. I also had a side habit of New Age books, crystals and dream catchers. I was setting intentions and trying to manifest my future long before it became a trend. And I prayed too for good measure. The soundtrack to this time was a mishmash of my parents' and brothers' tastes, pop, rock, dance, folk and country. I grew to love the stories in country music songs. One album that was always left ready to play in the kitchen was my mother's, Garth Brooks' The Hits. His songs cheered up many dreary school nights as we did the dishes before getting back to the study. Critical to my plan was an A in Honours English and an A in the mocks assured me I was on track. The day I did my actual Leaving Cert exam, I left the exam hall head high, satisfied I'd nailed it. For my composition, I'd chosen the title that appealed to me most. There is a divinity that shapes our ends. I wrote my essay about Hamlet's words. The view that in life there are many things out of our control and that in the end it is God or some higher force that will determine our destiny. I wrote about the human need to direct our lives and the important logical ways we try to do that. But, I wrote, we must allow for the possibility of a realm we can't control. The divine forces Shakespeare spoke of. For example, I wrote, look at the insight provided in the wonderful song Unanswered Prayers by Garth Brooks. In it, the singer bumps into an old flame and reflects on how desperately he had prayed to be with her many years earlier. Had God answered those prayers, he now realises, he would never have met the woman who is now his beloved wife. I felt in this song, Garth Brooks was beautifully illustrating Shakespeare's point. And I was sure the examiner would see this too. But a few months later, in Corsica for the summer to work as an au pair, I stood in a phone box holding a crumpled fax, my leaving results. 
Everything had lined up as planned, except English. I'd missed out on that A and it hurt. My dream crumbled. It cost me the vital points that would have made all the difference. My mother said my English teacher had phoned the house earlier, saying there must have been a mistake. What happened? I told her no, the mistake had been mine. Beneath the tears I felt a fool, judged. My essay must have been what let me down. William Shakespeare and Gar Brooks on the same page in a leave insert essay. What had possessed me? I pictured the examiner marking my paper, a retired English teacher with rows of highbrow literature on the shelves behind, classical music playing, shaking his head as he read my essay. By the following year, the dust had settled on that big disappointment. I went to a different college and did a different course. That summer, my new college friends persuaded me to join them in Scotland. One had a brother living there who had got her a job. A week later, I walked into a bar in Edinburgh with that friend and she introduced me to her new workmates. One of them, a guy in a Hawaiian shirt, caught my eye. Back in my car, 25 years later, I'm wondering if that same fella has any Czech shirts he could lend me for the big concert in Crow Park on Saturday. Because despite what that examiner or anyone else thinks, I'll always love a good story, whether it's high literature like Shakespeare or a song from Garth Brooks. And I do believe there's a divinity that shapes our ends. Because for me, one of life's greatest gifts came my way from an unanswered prayer. Just the other night at a hometown football game, my wife and I ran into my old high school flame. And as I introduced them, the past came back to me, and I couldn't help but think of the way things used to be. Mirror. I used to be on his mother's dressing table, one of the few things he rescued from her house. I sit now on their dusty chest of drawers. My feet fall off when his woman decides to dust. She doesn't clean me the way his mother buffed and polished, treasured. I'm not cared for like that now, but freer in a way, especially in autumn when I reflect the fruit trees back to themselves and her coloured scarves hanging on the door of the wardrobe. He slides up books in front of me and I read their titles over and over until he replaces them with others. The walnut wood of me listens when they talk and to their breathing and snuffling in the night. The room is stuffy even with the windows open. Mornings the birds wake the sky, pink as a baby's breath, like his breath when his mother held him close and looked for their reflection on my face, a pieta witnessed only by me. In my window, small pears redden, she collects elderberries, and a fawn and white cat touches me with her paw. He cuts the grass, passing over and back, over and back, the way he did once on a tricycle. He is a man now, not as interested in facing me, but my grain still holds his mother's touch. The scent of Pond's cold cream, wax polish, 
and another bedroom far from here, where she faded in front of me. Mornings, when I swing open the red gate, admitting the world again with its creeds and wars, the hinges sing their three sharp notes of protest. I hear the poplars in their murmurings and sifflings, while the labouring high caravans of the rain pass slowly by. It will seem as if the old certainties of the moon and stars, mingled with the turnings and returnings of dreams, missed to unreality although there rise about me matins and lauds of the meadow-sweet and rowan. The early morning news has again outlined the deadly injustices of a war that we thought could never happen, and for a moment I murmur my oft-repeated pleas to the deity. The first truck goes rattling down the wet road, and the raw arguments, the self-betrayed economies of governments assault me. So I will take care not to miss the clear-souled drops on the topmost bar of the gate that would whisper peace to our world. Noon, and the valley lies quiet today in the profound stillness that has been taking from us the green of late summer fullness, scarcely a breath on the air. Little expectancy, but the spirit holds. There is much trouble in the world, but, as yet, no diminution of hope. The spring acclamations of birdsong and the end of the summer migrations are behind us. Quick autumnal thunderstorms threaten. I let the red gate swing open to the demands of noon. In deep shadows of the wood a smallest creature stirs hesitates. At the wood's edge something shifts amongst the grasses, falls still. Upstairs the notebooks lie open, the laptop idles. I pause a while, inhale, turn towards the house. Evening offers the soft hum of vespers through the old and patient trees. There, just to the right as one comes in through the red gate, there is an oak tree, tall and elegant, not old, a presence that holds in bowl and branches a long and sacred tradition of Ireland and of quiet, and a linear connection. Its story is of an acorn, gifted, gathered by the poet Seamus Heaney from Henry David Toro's Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts. The acorn was offered to me by the late and profoundly missed Irish poet, and I planted it here, in love and memory, to be a spring of energy and possibility, a spur and magnitude on our small disordered lawn. It has been growing well, 
the way one might hope that what is best in the world will not succumb to frosts or violence or epidemics, or ever be wholly overcome in death, but will thrive here in the peaceable kingdom as walk on air, I whisper, walk on air, while inside the house of the Red Gate there is faithfulness and love, where we are keeping watch, maintaining light. Then sometimes towards dusk, when the winds come buffeting from the east, the Holy Ghost slips in through the red bars of the gate with a loud sigh, brings a cold shivering near the heart, and leaves me restless. These nights, as the world faces its nightmares of invasions and its heartaches of refugees, I think I hear the reassuring and unsettling surges of the sea, not the rough, unpredictable waters of Atlantic Ocean, but waves of the yellowing leaves of the poplars in the swelling breeze. When, late evening, I lean on the topmost bar of the Red Gate, looking out on the shadowed world, I search the innermost reaches of the spirit, scared lest I discover emptiness, a well that has run dry and holds only woodlice and weevils in its depths. Sometimes, we know, the spirit sags with a heavy sigh of stress and anxiety. But then I have swung round with joy to glimpse a red squirrel in its white apron chewing on an acorn, or catch the swift fly-past of a bat across the dusk-light. I know a gratitude, then, that tells of the sacred otherness of the earth. There is a rusty and twisted nail hammered in the top hinge of the gate to stop it scraping across the tarmac drive. A tiny golden earwig hides in the battered bolt hole. But the red gate is frontier and boundary, embrace of the within and the without, eye of the needle, its blood-red criss-crossing, the entrance into and out of life. Inside the gate, I release the words that have been hovering by me, and are now stirring like variegated moths, held fluttering in my hands, and hope they will not fly in vain. Here I have engaged with the enticing poetry of the Christ, and been engrossed in the cosmic wisdom of this anointed world, its weathers and renewals, involving myself in the exasperated creating spirit of humankind. Sometimes, after dusk, the words failing, with darkness swelling from the woods, I think my spirit may slip out through the red gate of the sheepfold, will find the narrow road, and, with a profound sigh, soar away towards a long-anticipated rest. On this morning's programme we heard Remembering Dermot Morgan by Fred Toot. Georgette Hare's The Unromantic Queen of Romantic Fiction was by Imer O'Kelly. Silver at the Ploughing by Fran O'Rourke. A Divinity That Shapes Our Ends by Sarah Trainer. Mirror, a poem by Lanny O'Hanlon. And The Red Gate by John F. Dean. The music this morning was Songs of Love by The Divine Comedy. Ignaz Pleyel's Octet in E-flat, Fourth Movement, played by Concertinum, Classicum. The Allegretto from Beethoven's Pastoral, played by the Chamber Orchestra of Europe, and that was conducted by Nikolaus Harnencourt. Unanswered Prayers was by Garth Brooks, and Autumn Song by Stephen Reynolds, played by Stephen Huff. 
Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You can find highlights from Sunday Miscellany at rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.